Love the fellowship. Good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing? You guys excited to be together? Excited to be here this morning with all of you. Welcome to Gateway Baptist Church. For those of you who may be visiting with us for the first time, we want to send you a special greeting. So glad you're here with us. Hopefully you were felt welcomed and loved on when you came in. We're going to enjoy a wonderful time in the Lord together this morning. This morning we're going to sing a, a song second one or third about Jesus being our shepherd king. And so just to prepare our hearts for that and to get our hearts in the right mindset before we worship, let's all stand up together and we're going to declare Psalm 23 together as a body in unity to prepare our hearts to worship the Lord. So let's all declare this together in unity. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Let's worship our shepherd king this morning. There's nothing impossible for you. 
God is numbered. I was made to walk with Him. Yet I looked for worldly treasure and forsake the King of Kings. But mine is hope in my Redeemer. Though I fall, His love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing, I am His forevermore. Mine are tears and times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood through the valley i must travel where i see no earthly good but mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need i know my pain will not be wasted Christ completes his work in me. Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on the narrow way, one with Christ I will harm and hatred for his name but mine is armor for this battle strong enough to last a war and he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore and mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the King I walk, for there my heart has found its treasure, Christ is mine forevermore. Zion City, where 
Christ is mine forevermore. Christ is mine forevermore. Christ is mine forevermore. Father, we are grateful that our soul can rejoice in your promises and rejoice in the fact that those who you save, you keep, God. You protect, you seal them to the end, you walk beside them, you send your helper, the Holy Spirit, to sanctify us and to teach us and to grow in our hearts, Lord, just a love for you and a love for your ways. And as we just recite through that psalm that you are our shepherd, God, that we will want for nothing because you supply all our needs, Father. Father, we thank you for all that you do for us. Pray that you are glorified in this place this morning, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Okay. Celebrating a baptism this morning. And so I want to remind you of what we are doing and why before we begin this. In Matthew chapter 28, a familiar text that's often called the Great Commission. We see in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This morning, we get to celebrate the baptism. One of the college student young adults, Kenzie Dunsmore here. This is Seth Rodebeck in the tank with her. And so we want you, first of all, to get to hear her testimony. So Megan, come on up here. She wrote out a testimony, and it is so powerful. We want just to read it to you and let you hear what God has done in her life. And so um, Megan Rodebeck, Seth's wife, is going to come share her story with you. Morning, everybody. Um, I'm about to be really ugly crying, so just um, forgive me. My little spiritual mommy heart is exploding with joy right now. Okay, so these are Mackenzie's words, but I'm going to read them for her. My walk in faith has not been linear. In fact, it felt like I was going in circles for a very, very long time. It wasn't until recently, in 2022, that I was saved. Let me start at the beginning. I was born and raised here in Montgomery, an only child to very, two very loving parents. I went to preschool at Fraser, and from what I can remember, my family was going to church pretty frequently. It wasn't until I was well into elementary school when we stopped going My grandfather on my dad's side had become sick with cancer, which ultimately ended up taking his life not long after. From then on, it seemed like my childhood was surrounded by and filled with death and sickness. Not long after the death of one of my grandfathers, the other grandfather on my mom's side became sick with cancer as well, and he too went on to his home in heaven with Christ. Then my only living grandmother was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Thankfully, she is still with us, but all of this, and I was less than 10 years old, my family stopped going to church. There were many things that got in the way of us going. Something always came up, and my relationship with the Lord was almost non-existent at this point. Being so young, it was hard for me to understand the gospel and really make a connection with it. 
I was told this and that about God, how he has a plan and how everything happens for a reason, but I was confused and couldn't understand why such bad things happened to my family. I did not want to believe in a God who let bad things happen to good people, so I grew frustrated and angry. And throughout middle school and high school, I didn't have many friends. The ones I did have were not Christians, and I never had conversations with them about religion. It seemed almost taboo. When I would have conversations with my parents about it, I put on a front. I didn't want them to know I didn't believe for fear of feeling like I let them down or they had failed me in some way. It wasn't their fault. They did their best to explain the word of God to me. It was my fault because I didn't want to hear it or believe it. In high school, I became very depressed. I was at a private school where most kids there came from wealthy families. Everyone was smart and part of certain cliques and groups, but I was not. I had one best friend who eventually stopped talking to me in order to fit in with everyone else. And then I was alone, alone to wonder why no one liked me. My people made up rumors about me, why I wasn't as smart as everyone else, even though I stayed up until the early hours of the morning studying. Why I couldn't be as good of an athlete as everyone else seemed to be. Why my family had to struggle so much. Why wasn't I ever good enough? Why? I remember screaming this to God one night on the floor of my room in tears. I almost ended it all in 11th grade, but my parents were on top of getting me into therapy and trying different medications, anything they could do to help me. My senior year, I switched schools and things got better. I finally had a good group of friends. I was doing well in school and sports I was involved in and had somewhat of a plan for what I wanted to do with my life. After graduating, I started attending AUM, where I am still at today. I also began working at a veterinary clinic that I had been shadowing at for a while. However, I lacked community at school and work at the clinic became mentally exhausting. I started falling back into depression again. I also got into a new relationship, which was unhealthy. I was verbally and emotionally abused over and over again, but never left because, well, I was in love and thought that that was the kind of love I deserved. But love isn't love when you leave God out. When that relationship finally ended, I was even worse off. There I was again, alone, struggling in school, no friends, miserable at work, confused. But I kept going through the motions, taking it day by day, but feeling like a complete and total waste of space. I had given up any and all faith in God. I was lost. And then my dear coworker, boss, and friend, all in one, committed suicide. And I think you can imagine how badly this affected me. On March 7th, 2021, I drove to a spot near the lake that I had grown fond of and took a decent amount of pills. I quite honestly don't really remember much from that day or the days following. I just know I'm here now, and that's all that matters. A few months later, I finally made some friends at school. They were the goofiest group of guys ever, but meeting them changed my life. They accepted me into their little group, and I started hanging out with them a lot at the BCM, the Baptist Campus Ministries on campus. They also were the ones who invited me to college group on Monday nights. Where I met two of the kindest souls, Seth and Megan. Despite not wanting to believe in God at this time, I went, and I listened, and then I went again, and again, and again, and again. 
And it got to the point where not going to college group made me feel like something big was missing from my week. I had a full-on community now, and my heart was finally opening up, but I didn't realize this at the time. I remember opening up to Megan about why I didn't believe and got very deep into why I was on the fence about putting my faith in God. Not long after, I decided to dedicate the time to really get in the Word, to go to church, to pray, to be with my community despite being so unsure. And then one day, I don't remember the specific day, but I remember the feelings that consumed me. I was outside reading my Bible and reflecting on my life, every single moment of pain and suffering, but also everything that I was blessed with following the pain and suffering. And there was a revelation on this one random day in the summer of 2022 that I felt everything just fall into place. I realized that God had never withheld anything good from me. My hurt had not been wasted. All of the hardships that I've been through have not been for nothing. And those pills I took did not kill me because my work here in this world isn't done. It's just beginning. If you had told me last year that I would be where I am today, I would never have believed you. Now, as most of you know, I am a part of the praise team here at Gateway. Worshiping with my community fills my heart every time I am on stage, and I am blessed and so thankful to be able to praise the Lord in this way with you all. Recently, within the past few months, I've become a certified personal trainer with 20-plus clients and counting. My ultimate goal is to help people lead longer, healthier lives while also planting the seed of the gospel in the hearts of as many as I can. I've seen what the Lord can do for me in such a short amount of time, and I hope to relay a message to others who are struggling that he can do the same for them. My heart, my mind, my life have been renewed through my faith in Jesus Christ. Everything I've been through was his way of bringing me closer to him. Although I didn't know it during those difficult seasons, time after time, he reached down into the water when I was drowning and pulled me back to the surface, closer and closer to him. He's brought me back to life, and I love him and trust him with everything that I am. Can I keep? Okay. Sorry, I'm going to keep the mic just for a quick second. Um, because Mackenzie and I are the same person, we wrote out what we were going to say. Um, so I'm just going to read this. Um, as I was reading your testimony yesterday, a few words stood out to me that you felt abandoned, not good enough, alone, depressed, anxious, unloved, and unworthy. And it struck me that those are the word those words are the identity that the world offers. An identity given by other broken, sinful humans, which leads to death. Spiritual death, but also in your case, very nearly a physical death. But God, right? Yeah. But God, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. 
I have had the honor and the privilege of watching a dead person come alive. What a miracle, right? We take it for granted, guys. We take it for granted. But we have the gospel. We have treasure. We have treasure. We have life that we have to offer people. So thank you for letting us be a part of it. And I thought I'd spend this morning just speaking your new identity over you. I want you to know what God says about you. No more will you be defined by the value other people give you. No more will you believe the lie of the enemy that whispers your worthlessness. So this is what your good father says about you. You are made in his image. You are carefully planned, knitted together in your mother's womb, and you were wonderfully made. You were created for good works. You were chosen by God to be adopted into his family. You are a daughter of the king. You are seen by God. You're forgiven. You are free from the bondage of sin. You're righteous. You are redeemed. You are never alone because God himself is always with you. You are accepted in Christ. You are precious and beloved in his sight. And you are his. So continue to fight the fight, battle the lies about who you really are, and believe what God says about you. I love you so much. I'm exploding. I'm so happy. (laughs) Thanks, Megan. Thanks for sharing it, Kinsey. Your testimony is powerful of God's grace chasing after you and changing you and transforming you, and we're rejoicing with you. I'm going to take just a minute. If anyone wants to share a word of encouragement to her, I hold the microphone. Just take 30 seconds, but any of your friends or anyone want to say a word of encouragement to you this morning? I see you back here. Mackenzie, I don't know why I'm going to cry because I don't cry, but um, just seeing your face, like each time I go to the gym, (laughs) whenever I feel like going, but um, I just, every time I see you, you just have the biggest smile on your face, and I know you're tired from dealing with clients and dealing with people all day, and that's exhausting, but um, that's just one thing I see about you, and even before hearing your testimony, um, I just see you as such a raw person, a real person, like any conversation I've had with you, you are just so down to earth. So, um, just a real person. Like I don't have to worry about, you know, putting on a front or I just know that you, you're honest, you're, um, you share what's on your mind. And, and I think even hearing your testimony, just how vulnerable you were. Um, and I just, I don't know, I would through growing in Christ, I would definitely encourage you to keep, even in the bad days, you're gonna have good and bad days, but, um, just being, keep being vulnerable with people, even whenever, you know, you may not want to, but I don't know. I just want to say that real quick. Thanks. Hey. Hi, my, um, my name's Rhonda. I'm Mackenzie's aunt, and um, I was invited here today by her parents, and I can attest to what uh, was said about when she said a year ago, oh, I wouldn't believe this. I know that because I, I said it to her. And so I have been praying for her 
for a year, the same thing over and over. Kenzie, I'm so proud of you. I am so proud for you hanging on and keeping your eyes focused and, and never giving up. And just, just, I just pray that you'll just keep on. Thank you for having me today. And thank you for your prayers for her. You see how the Lord has answered prayers. Anyone else want to say anything? Hi, I'm Mackenzie's mom. My name is Rhonda Austin. And this is my husband, Bobby, Mackenzie's dad. And I just wanted to let you know how grateful I am to everyone here at this church, to the young men that Kenzie met and led her to Christ and Seth and Megan. We pray, have prayed hard for her. We have had many prayer warriors um, praying for her through the years. And I just want to let her know how proud I am of her. I love you. Your dad and I love you more than anything in this world. And we pray that you will continue to grow with Christ and just trust in him and his plan for you. We love you. And what a great reminder of the power of prayer for us, church, to not grow weary in the doing good of praying for those we love who don't know the Lord, so to see this happen for them as well. So, Seth, I want to turn it over to you to the final word and then to baptize her. An awesome journey to watch. And as I was praying about you and reading that testimony this morning, the verse I thought of is in John 1, where it talks about how Jesus is the Word, and the Word came into the world. It shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And now, as a child of God, you're never in the dark again, right? You've got a whole community of people. And to you, church, I want to encourage you with her story as well. What a beautiful testimony of the church, of playing its role, of taking the gospel to the darkness. Um, The whole story, not the whole story, but Kenzie was just sitting at a soccer game over at AUM. And a bunch of our college guys were there, and they just invited her to come. They just got to know her, and they invited her, and that's how this happened. So to encourage you, church, to continue to take the gospel to the lost, continue to take the gospel to the darkness, and it will return, right? We are promised the word of God will not return, boy. So, Kenzie, just one question for you. Are you placing your hope for your salvation and your faith in Jesus Christ alone? I am. (laughs) Well, good. Well, let me turn you this way, and based on your confession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we do celebrate and rejoice in what God has done in her life. This is Jeff Moody, one of our elders. He's going to lead us in a prayer time. Thank you, Father. Sometimes that's all we can say and all we need to say is thank you for getting to witness the truth of your gospel played out in Kenzie's life. What a glorious representation of death to life and bringing joy from sorrow. And we are so grateful to be in the community where that is our core that you stepped out of heaven to take our sin upon you to give us new life. 
in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that story that we just heard in the baptism is a testimony of that and what we carry forward as your ambassadors in this world. So, Lord, would you help us to surrender to that calling? Would you give us the desire and the dependence upon you to take your message forward, this message of reconciliation? Just like the college guys did at that soccer game and as Kenzie did this morning and as we continue to see throughout that your gospel continues to go forward. Help us see the wonder and the mystery and the glory of your incredible work in this world. And so as we pray, as we bring these requests before you, we know that it's from that core that we want to keep carrying this gospel forward and praying for those people who are. We want to pray for the Montgomery Baptist Association Love Loud Food Bus and for Jeremy Lynch as he leads the ministry taking food and the gospel to those in the river region who are in need. God, may that work continue and may you we pray that you would continue to feed souls and that you would continue to feed bodies and bring more people to you and for john halbrooks and his ministry with the mistech church in highland gardens god thank you for that ministry and as they continue to lead out and to care for this group of people who might feel alienated in this area and not feel reconciled and feel left out god to take that ministry of reconciliation to them to show that the body of Christ has no boundaries. Lord, continue to work through John and through that ministry there. And for Ryan and Joy Thomas in Cambodia. And God, we, we love Ryan and Joy and we are glad to partner with them. And we pray that they would depend on your power and mercies to serve their kids in their local church and community. God, you've opened the doors for them to minister to and to counsel many missionaries and pastors. We pray that you would give them wisdom as they serve you in that way. And we pray for Ryan as he goes to Nepal at the end of the month to teach teach Nepalese believers and to share the gospel in the mountains. God, that is your kingdom going forward at the ends of the earth as the way we define it. And Lord, help us remember that if we were to, if we were to look at this geographically right now, we are the ends of the earth. And so you keep extending your kingdom forward. And we pray for Ryan for joy as they take that on and on. And God, as a part of that, you call us to submit all of ourselves to you. And that includes our finances. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts to be cheerful givers to the work of your kingdom. And finally, we pray for Grady this morning as he continues to carry the gospel forward for us in the sermon. Lord, we pray that you would speak through him, that you would give us attentive ears and attentive hearts. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
boys and girls, first to fourth grade, you're dismissed to kids' worship. You've got Mr. <laughs> you got Mr. Jeff with you this morning. So boys and girls, first to fourth grade, you're dismissed to kids' worship. Now, while they're on their way to kids' worship, if you will find 1 Peter chapter 3 in your copy of God's Word, 1 Peter chapter 3, we are in a year-long journey walking through 1 Peter verse by verse. And where we are right now, if you're visiting with us, we are in Peter's longest section on the topic of suffering. These are not fun verses for us. These are not easy verses for us. But these are very needed verses for us. We've been seeing in these recent weeks as we thought about suffering, we've been challenged to consider God's will for our lives, particularly how we relate to non-Christians, how we relate even to those who harm us, even those who inflict suffering in our lives. And we've seen over these last three or four weeks that we're not to ever seek payback, but we're to bless. We've seen we're not to do evil, but we're to be peacemakers. We've seen we're not to fear suffering, but we're to trust in God. We've seen we're not to be passive, but we're to be ready to speak the gospel to those around us, even again those who may cause us suffering. And ultimately, in all these weeks, what we keep going back to is we see that our hope is in the bigness of God, in the sovereignty of God over all things. Now, friends, we continue this section on suffering this morning in verses 16 and 17 of 1 Peter chapter 3. And really, these verses are a continuation of what we started last week. And that is, how do we make Christ known to the non-believers around us? As we are walking through sufferings, as we are walking through hardships and trials in life, how do we make Christ known to those around us? Now, because today's text flows out of last week, so I want to remind us of what we saw last week. Look back at verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 3. We saw last Sunday, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being ready or being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We saw last week that our sufferings and our trials give us opportunities to share the hope of the gospel with other people. And last week we focused on what we're to say. When people ask us, how do you have hope? What do we say? And we saw the what we say is this word defense here, this word apologia. It is the simple message of the gospel that radically changed Kenzie's life. We saw last week how we say the gospel to non-believers, and that is that word gently there at the end of verse 15. And then we saw why we say the gospel to other people, and that's that word respect, which really is the Greek word for fear, that in the fear of God, we find motivation to do these things. Now, I hope you've reflected on that this week. And in light of that, before we jump into today's text, I wanna ask you, who has God most burdened your heart for? Who is it that you know who does not know Christ, that God is calling you to make Christ known to? Who is it in your life that God is most burdening your heart to take the gospel to? And I hope you'll think on that and think on that in light of verse 15 of what we say and how we say it and why we say the gospel to them. But as Peter's going to show us this morning in verses 16 and 17, yes, we need to articulate the gospel. But we also need to focus on how we live. Because, friends, how we live affects how we share the gospel. Peter's going to dr drive home for us this morning that an effective witness for Jesus, to whoever that is that God has put on your heart this week, an effective witness for Jesus to them is best done when our lives match what we share. When our lifestyle matches the words of the gospel that we are sharing to them. Yes, friends, the words are essential. No one will understand the hope we have. No one will understand the gospel without words. It is a specific message that has to go forward. So we see in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, we're told that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so the lost around us are not going to understand the gospel. We're just nice, good people. 
there has to be proclamation. Words have to go forth that explains who God is and who we are and why we need to be reconciled to him. But friends, as we embrace the gospel, as you just saw this morning powerfully in that baptism, it changes our lives and it, and it radically transforms us. And so if we're telling people have hope, but our lives are not matching what we're saying, those inconsistencies hinder our gospel witness. And that's exactly what Peter's gonna drive home for us this morning in verses 16 and 17. And so the question for us to wrestle with this morning in these two verses is what do we need in our lives if we want to point the lost to Christ? What do you and I need in our life if we want to effectively point non-believers to Christ? So if you think again about that person that's most heavy on your heart, that you long to see transformed as you saw this morning, what needs to be happening, not just what you say to that person, what needs to be happening in you to be an effective witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want you to look for the answer to that as we read verses 16 and 17 this morning. What do we need in our lives if we want to point the lost to Christ? So I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the word of God. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. We'll also have the words on the screen. But 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for just the powerful display of the gospel that we've already seen this morning. Thank you for the truths that we have sung this morning of our hope in you. And Lord, I pray now as we open your word and dig into it, that the riches of your word would be food for our souls, that we would hunger to know you more, that we'd hunger to understand your word. And Lord, that we would desire to see you give us grace to live this out. Lord, guard us today from this just being intellectual truths for us. Guard us today from this just being some nice thought. I pray today the Holy Spirit would stir my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters to push us to do what you are calling us to do so that your gospel will go forth to the lost around us. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. So what do we need to have in our lives we want to point the lost to Christ? I want us to explore that this morning. I want to explore it by asking three questions this morning to help us understand and get our mind around this text. So the first question for this morning is simply, what do the lost need to see in us? What do the lost need to see in us? Now, when I use the word lost for clarity, I'm speaking about any non-Christians, people who are not trusting in Jesus Christ, people who are not trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of their sins, people who do not love Jesus and are not passionate about living for him. That's what I mean when I'm speaking of the lost. Now, the reality is we are surrounded by non-believers, by the lost. And as we saw last week, what we just read a minute ago in verse 15, that we have a commission from the Lord to take the gospel to them. I read that from Matthew 28 earlier. We saw it last week in verse 15. We have a message to take to them. But Peter turns now, what needs to support that message? What else goes along with that verbal message of the gospel? And he tells us at the beginning of verse 16. Notice this first phrase of our text this morning, having a good conscience. So what do the lost need to see in us? The answer, quite simply, is they need to see a good conscience. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's take a step back. What is our conscience? Now, if you watch cartoons and the old cartoons, most of the times conscience was portrayed as there's an angel on this shoulder saying, don't do that. That's a bad thing. On this shoulder is a little demon being like, oh, you know you want this, right? And they argue back and forth. That's not what a conscience is. What a conscience is is an inner sense that God gives to people to distinguish right from wrong. So it's not an angel on one side and a demon on the other. A conscience is something God puts within people to help them distinguish right from wrong. Perhaps the best definition I read this week is an inner witness 
of God's standards. Look how like this. This is an inner witness inside of us of God's standards. And God gives it to every person. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 brings this out. In Romans 2, for when Gentiles, and here by Gentiles he means non-believers, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. And he goes on in verse 15. They show that the work of the law, notice this, is written on their hearts. So saying even people who've never been exposed to the message of Scripture somehow in their hearts have the message of the law there, while their conscience also bears witness, while their inner witness of God's moral standards is convicting them, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so every person has a conscience. It is given by God, and though the lost have it, they suppress it. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, if you go back one chapter. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, this is by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So God gives to all people, because we're all made in his image, God gives every person a conscience, an inner sense of right and wrong, an inner witness of his standards, but the law suppress that. They fight against that. But what God is calling us as believers to have for the sake of our witnesses to have a good conscience, not to suppress our conscience, but to nurture a good conscience. So what does it mean for our conscience to be good? Well, think about Peter's letter so far. Anytime you see good, he's talking about Christ-like behavior. Good deeds in Peter, good things are Christ-like behavior, practical holiness being more like Christ. Now, this is important, friends, because that means a good conscience is not me setting my own standard and then being okay with it. A good conscience is not me just, I'm going to embrace who I am and everyone needs to get used to that. That's not a good conscience. A good conscience is the God-given witness inside of us that produces in us practical holiness. So a good conscience is God's standard, God's moral law that he puts into our hearts, and it produces in us Christ-likeness. It produces in us practical holiness. So when we're obeying God, we're in the middle of God's will, our conscience encourages us in that. It affirms that, that this is the right path, pursue it. But when we're disobeying God and we're outside of our will, the Holy Spirit uses our conscience to give us discomfort and conviction to lead us as God's children to repentance. So a good conscience is a God-given witness inside of us of his standards, and it produces in us practical holiness. And that's exactly what you see Peter do with these verses. So he tells us back in verse 16, having a good conscience. Now, what results from that? So that when you are slandered, those who revile, notice this, your good behavior. So your good conscience leads to good behavior. Your desire to know God and his law and God's work in you through the Holy Spirit and through the conscience he gives you produces in you good behavior, greater Christ-likeness. These things that make you different from the world or in Peter's term makes you sojourners and exiles because you're different from those around you. You see that again in verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good. So we have a good conscience, and it produces in us good behavior. It produces in us doing good because it reminds us of God's standards and leads to practical holiness in our life. Now, important clarification here. A good conscience does not mean perfection or sinlessness. We will never have sinlessness or perfection in this life. So I want you to see the example of Paul himself. Acts chapter 23, verse 1. He's before the Sanhedrin. He's giving a defense of himself. And look at what Paul tells the council. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So Paul's defense of a good conscience is I have done this up until this day. But flip over to Romans chapter 7, verse 15. And what does Paul say about himself? For I do not understand my own actions. 
For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now, two verses later in verse 17, what does he say? So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Okay, Paul, what is it? You've just told us before council, I have a good conscience, and now you're telling us that sin is at work, doing things in you that you hate. Which one is it? Well, it's both. It's not a contradiction here. Our good conscience reminds us of God's perfect standards, his moral law. The Holy Spirit uses that to create in us a desire to obey God, but we will struggle with sin until the day we see Jesus face to face. And so our conscience convicts us of that and leads us to a place of repentance. So good conscience is not perfection, but it is a willingness to quickly repent when we realize we have sinned against God. It is a desire for God and a desire to not stay where we are, but a desire to be transformed by the grace of God. And as we have a good conscience that longs for that, God gives us practical growth and godliness. So first question, what do the lost need to see in us? They need to see in us a good conscience. Because they can't see our good conscience, they see the fruit of a good conscience. They see the Christ-likeness, the growing godliness in us because of what God has done. Question two, why do the lost need to see a good conscience in us? Why is this so important in this context of us witnessing for the lost? Two reasons, a negative and a positive. Here's a negative one. The negative one is the lost world is eager to discredit the gospel. The lost world is so eager to discredit the gospel. Paul, or sorry, Peter warns us about this here in verse 17 in this contrast. He says, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That means in this life, friends, we may have suffering that is self-induced. Because of our own sinful choices, because of the stupid things we have done, we may experience suffering for that. And friends, that is a reminder to us that the world is eager for us to sin. The world is eager for us to fall and to be like them. Peter's already told us this in 1 Peter 4, 4, because the world is eager for us to not be different. With respect to this day, the world, the lost, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. The world wants us to not be different for Christ. As one of the authors I read this week said it so well, he said, what makes the world feel so self-righteous and so right in condemning Christianity is to come against someone who has so scandalized the Christian faith. The world loves that. They absolutely love to do that because that makes them feel righteous because there is a scandal really there. The world doesn't want us to be different for Christ. And so they're eager to try to find those discrepancies. Oh, you say you're a Christian. Oh, you're saying that you're going to heaven one day, but look at what you have Done. The world is eager to try to discredit the gospel by looking at the sin of believers. Friends, when we do not seek God's transforming grace, when we do not desire growth in godliness, we are putting ourselves on a dangerous path, a path of sin that not only hurts us, but they can undermine the message of hope we are trying to share with others. So one reason why it's so important for the lost to see a good conscience at work in us is because they're eager to try to find hypocrisy and discredit the gospel. But a second reason, a more positive reason, why they need to see this, is because our transformed lives help them understand the gospel. Our transformed lives help them understand the gospel. We are sharing the hope of Christ with them, and as we, they see it changing us, it makes more sense to them. Now think back for a minute here. The last time you saw an ad on TV or online for exercise equipment, whether it's the newest Bowflex or the newest home gym piece of equipment, or even the latest gym membership you should join, have you ever seen a piece of exercise equipment advertised by someone who is severely out of shape and winded, right? There's, if someone was sitting on that weight bench and they're incredibly winded and gasping for air and going, but you should, I've been doing this for two years and it, it's changing my life. Order one too, only $400, get one for you. Like, you're not gonna buy it. Why? 
because they say it's the best thing and it's changed their life, but they've discredited the effectiveness of that by their own lie. Friends, how much is that what's happening? Is we're walking around going, I'm a Christian, come to church with me, but we're doing the same thing so often when we're not seeking God's grace to transform us. Now, we're not selling anything, friends, but we have something much better than anything that could be sold. We have hope in eternity, hope in knowing God, hope in him transforming us. We have hope, and as one of the authors I read said this week, we cannot explain the hope we have in Christ while living in a way that contradicts that hope. We cannot explain the hope we have in Christ while living in a way that contradicts that hope. Friends, if our hope is real, especially when life is hard, if the gospel is growing us in godliness and breaking sin patterns in our life, it is a vivid picture before a watching world of not just words that God is real and God will change you, but they see it demonstrated through our own life and our testimony. Now, you know this verse well because I reference it a lot. It's one of my favorite verses in 1 Peter. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 that we saw several months ago. 1 Peter 2, 12. Keep your conduct, it's the way you live, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They see the good deeds that come from a good conscience. And God uses that, though they may speak against you, to draw some of the loss to himself. That God will use your verbal testimony matched with your lifestyle of transformation to open the eyes of non-believers. Isn't that what we saw in Kinsey's testimony today? You heard Megan read it, but I want to read one part of it again. She said, they accepted me into their little group. And I started hanging out with them a lot at the BCM, the Baptist Campus Ministries on campus. They also were the ones who invited me to college group on Monday night where I met two of the kindest souls, Seth and Megan. You hear what's happening there? This is what we're seeing here in 1 Peter. People were saying, hey, come to church. But Kinsey saw not just the words, she saw a life that was transformed. She saw people showing grace, people who loved God, and that made an impression on her. And God used that along with the prayers of many people and all those experiences to bring her to saving faith in Christ. You see that as well. If you're familiar, there's a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. She was an atheist and a lesbian who God redeemed. If you've never read her story, we have it in the resource center. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I want you to hear just an excerpt of it, because here's a lady who was hostile to the gospel. She was doing research to try to discredit Christians. She hated the gospel, but a pastor and his wife befriended her. Now, the pastor's name was Ken, and here's what Rosaria Butterfield, at the time a staunch atheist, says. She said, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at Gay Pride marches. The Christians who mocked me on Gay Pride Day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock me. He engaged. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. Notice this. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. The impression that made when a pastor and his wife invited an atheist, lesbian, hostile to the gospel into their life, and before her as they prayed would confess sins. Before her they would pray, they would thank God for all things. The gospel was transforming Ken and his wife, and it made a massive impression on this lady, Rosaria Butterfield, and God used it to bring her to faith in Christ. Friends, the lost need to hear the gospel, 
but the lost need to see the gospel changing us, the messengers who take it to them. So what do the lost need to see? A good conscience that produces Christ-likeness in us. Why do they need to see it? So there's no grounds in their mind to discredit the gospel, but even more so they see what God's grace looks like changing a person. Now that leads to our third question for the morning. How do we cultivate a good conscience? How do we cultivate a good conscience? Back to verse 16 here. We're told having a good conscience. Friends, we have a choice because God has given us the conscience. Are we going to suppress it? and ignore it, and try to justify it or drown it out? Are we going to cultivate a conscience that loves God's law, a conscience that we want to direct us in the right direction? So how do we cultivate it? Foundationally, friends, if we're going to cultivate a good conscience, we have to recognize that it is God's work in us. It is God's work in us. If you leave today and go, I'm going to try harder this week to have a good conscience, you're missing the point of this text. This is not a text where we try harder for self-help to get better. God is the one who created a conscience in each person. God is the one who redeemed our conscience when he redeemed us. God is the one growing our conscience as the Holy Spirit dwells within us so that we know him more, friends. We are not going to redeem our own conscience. We're not going to make a good conscience in and of ourselves. It is God's work in us. I love how the author of Hebrews describes this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. In Hebrews 10, you get a picture of what God's grace does, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here it is, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, and notice this, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, if we have a good conscience, it's not because we tried harder to get it. If we have a good conscience because God, when he redeemed us, changed our conscience as he changed us. He is the one who gave it to us. He's the one who awakens it. He's the one who gives us Holy Spirit to shape it. And he's the one who calls us to run to his word because the more we know the word of God, the more it feeds our conscience to do what God created it to do. But friends, the reality that God has to be the one to cleanse and renew our conscience does not lead us to passivity. I love what Paul says in Acts chapter 24, verse 16. He says, so I always just take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. I take pains, or if you read New American Standard, I always do my best to have a clear conscience. So how do we have a clear conscience? How do we cultivate? If God has to do it, but he calls us to strive to have one, how do we do that? What does that look like? I've heard me say in recent weeks, the battle is won or lost in the mind. And I'm convinced of that with our conscience as well. How we think is going to affect whether or not we suppress our conscience or pursue a good conscience. So how do we cultivate it? I've been wrestling with this all week, and it finally hit me on Fridays. I struggled through this text. How do we cultivate this if God's the one who has to do it? And I saw it finally on Friday as I've been wrestling with it this week, that it's right here in this text all around us. There's five things that... Peter shows us here that we can think about that cultivate a good conscience. And the five things that we're to think about, because again, the battles won or lost in the mind, he shows us are five of the attributes of God, five of his characteristics, five parts of his nature. Now, we talk about this periodically. It's been around Gateway. This is not new, but it just kind of clicked for me this week. If I want a growing conscience, the best thing I can do is not try to figure stuff out myself, but to run to the scriptures and think about the character, the nature of God. And that's what Peter's been doing here for us. Five things about God's character that the more we dig in and think about, the more we'll cultivate a good conscience in us. Number one, the holiness of God. 
the holiness of God. By holiness, I mean his complete perfection in himself, his complete separation from sin, his perfection in all that he is and all that he does, his hatred of sin, the holiness of God. Peter just highlighted it, what we saw last week. Notice verse 15, that first phrase. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So in your hearts, to hallow, to think about the holiness of God. And friends, how does thinking about the holiness of God help us cultivate a good conscience? Because the more we understand his holiness, friends, the more we understand how he views sin. The more it counters the lies of our own heart that wants to justify our sin, explain away our sin, excuse our sin. It helps us because we begin to understand how important holiness is to God. So we dwell on the holiness of God. Number two, we think about the justice of God. We think about the justice of God. Justice is just an outflow, an expression of his holiness. It's this outward hatred of sin that is good. It's this commitment to punish every sin. We see that in our verse today as well. Go back to verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, friends, in our culture, when we hear shame, we think of like an emotion of being embarrassed. That's not what shame meant in the biblical times. Shame in this scripture is referring to eternal punishment for, for sin in particular as we look at the New Testament text. So if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, this is how Peter's already used this idea of shame. Verse 6, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, notice this, will not be put to shame. That when we believe in Christ, we don't have to fear the judgment of God, the justice of God, because it's already been dealt with by Christ. But for those who do not believe, when they stand before God one day, they will feel shame, not the emotion of shame, that that may be part of it. They will experience the justice of a holy God, and that is terrifying. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus speaks to this. He says, then he will say to those on his left, and by the way, he's just explained people whose lives have not been transformed by the gospel, Depart from me, you curse it into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels, the justice of God. We think on it. Now, how does thinking on God's justice help us pursue, cultivate a good conscience? Well, again, friends, it helps us see how seriously God views sin. My heart and your heart is so prone to want to think we're pretty good people and we're okay. As we think about the justice of God, even what Jesus says in Matthew 25, it obliterates any thought that I'll be able to stand before God one day and say, God, I am a good person. It brings us to our dependence on him. But friends, thinking about the justice of God also helps us realize what's at stake. But that person I asked you about at the beginning, who is it that is most on your heart that you want to see come to faith in Christ? This is the reality that awaits them, friends. This is the reality that they will face the justice of God. And that should motivate us to, as you heard in the testimonies earlier, to be praying for that person fervently and earnestly and getting other people praying for that person. It should motivate us to look for every open door to speak of the hope of Christ and share Christ. But it also should motivate us to want to be a living picture before them of what a transformed life by God's power looks like. So we think about God's holiness. We think about God's justice. Number three, we think about God's grace. We think about God's grace. Now, it's not directly in this text, but it's implied. Go back to verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, <clears throat> those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That means for us, friends, like we just read, we will never be put to shame if we know Christ. We are under grace. He has forgiven us of it. And so Romans 10, that quotes the same text here, Romans 10, 11 to 13, because the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, it carries on. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. 
for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So verse 13, this beautiful promise, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We think about God's grace that we deserved eternal shaming, eternal judgment, but instead we stand forgiven because all of our sins were put on Christ and all of his righteousness was given to us. Now, how does that help us cultivate a good conscience, friends? Because it reminds us of what we've been delivered from. So our hearts are less prone to want to run back to what we've been rescued from. But thinking about the grace of God also reminds us, friends, that we are no better than the people we are sharing with. We are not Christians because we are smarter, wiser, or put more effort into it. We are forgiven simply by the grace of God, nothing in and of ourselves. My friends, it also helps us because it reminds us that none of those people that I asked you earlier, who's on your heart, none of them are beyond the reach of God's grace. If God's grace can save me, if God's grace can save Kinsey, if God's grace can save Rosaria Butterfield, God's grace can save that person that you are worried about as well. So we think on the grace of God. We think on the justice of God. We think about the holiness of God. Number four, we think deeply about the sovereignty of God. We talked about this last week. Sovereignty is God's control of all things, his wisdom to know what is right, his power to bring it about, his perfections and all of his will. <clears throat> we think about this sovereignty of God. Look back at verse 17 here. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. This phrase, if it's God's will, literally means if the will of God should will. That word will is repeated more than once in the Greek. If the will of God should will. God is sovereign. He has a good plan for all things. He has a good plan for us, even for our trials, and nothing can stop his will. Did you catch this in Kenzie's testimony this morning? I'll read you one little excerpt from it again. She said, I was, re I was outside reading my Bible and reflecting on my life. Every single moment of pain and suffering, but also everything that I was blessed with following the pain and suffering. There was a revelation on this one random day in the summer of 2022 that I felt everything just fell into place. Catch this. She says, I realized that God had never withheld anything good from me. My hurt has not been wasted. All the hardships that I've been through have not been for nothing. And that is a beautiful picture of what Peter is showing us right here. If the will of God should will, God is sovereign over all things. Now, how does the sovereignty of God help us, friends, as we seek to cultivate a good conscience? It reminds us that even those sufferings that we're walking through are in his hands and are an opportunity that he will use to point others to Christ. It also reminds us again that he's sovereign and no one is beyond his reach. So we think about his holiness we think about his justice, we think about his grace, we think about his sovereignty. One more, we think about his faithfulness. We think about his faithfulness, that he will do all that he has promised. Look back in verse 12 that we saw just a few weeks ago. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The faithfulness of God. What has God promised? He's promised to always be with us. As we walk through the trials, as we seek to have a good conscience before the non-believers, as we seek to share Christ with them, we are not alone in this, that he is with us. And for whatever that struggle of sin is that you have that seems to keep holding on, he is with you as you seek his grace to change. God's faithfulness reminds us that we are not alone and he will do all he has promised. So if we want a good conscience, if we want to cultivate it, think deeply on his holiness. Think deeply on his justice. Think deeply about his grace. Think deeply about his sovereignty. Think deeply about his faithfulness. And how do you think about those things, friends? You run to the scripture, the place where he's revealed himself to us and shown us his character. Let's try to bring all that together for this morning. 
First question, what do the lost need to see in us? A good conscience that produces Christ-likeness. Question two, why do they need to see it? Because it shows them what God's grace does for a person. It's a picture of the gospel for them. And number three, how do we cultivate it? We run, we run to the scriptures to think about the nature of our God. Let's bring all that together. Here's the main idea of this text I want to challenge us with this morning. It's simply this, friends. Our desire for God's grace to grow us in holiness will strengthen our witness to the lost. Our desire for God's grace to grow us in practical holiness and Christ-likeness will strengthen our witness to the lost. These verses this morning, 16 and 17, about suffering are in the context of talking about Christ, the hope we have with non-believers. And friends, God in his sovereignty has put lost people around me and around you, whether it's at work or school, in our neighborhood, the places you frequent at the gym or the store, perhaps even in your own home. And as God has given to you as his child hope in the midst of hardships, and even the trials and the hardships you walk through perhaps are something God in his sovereignty has put in your life. So your hope and your joy and your peace in the middle of the hardships become a light to those around who need to believe. And so our calling from the Lord in this is to cultivate a good conscience. He's given it to us. He created the conscience. He renews it when we trust Christ. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And now he calls us to think about him and to pursue him and to read his word and study his standard and cultivate a conscience so that we see practical holiness growing in our lives, a practical holiness that will verify the gospel, if you will, before the lost around us. Our desire for God's grace to grow in holiness will strengthen our witness to the lost. That raises the question for us, friends. Back to that person I asked you to think about earlier. What do they see in you? What do they see in me? Because the humbling reality for us, friends, is that we fall so short many days of cultivating a good conscience, don't we? I love how Paul Tripp says it. I love, I love Paul Tripp's honesty. It's so refreshing. He said, I find personally this phrase, this phrase about a good conscience, deeply convicting because there's moments when I'm having that third piece of chocolate cake that I don't actually need. I don't care about a good conscience before God. All I want is my pleasure. When I'm having an argument with someone just because I want to be right, I don't care about a good conscience before God. All I want is my pleasure. May God help us. And in this culture where we find joy in taking the person down on Twitter, or we get our identity out of how many followers we have on Instagram, how important is it to hear this call? May we value, may we treasure a good conscience before God. Friends, what do the lost see around you? What do the lost see around me? Do they see a picture of a good conscience that's being transformed by God's grace, creating us practical holiness that shows how the gospel not only leads a person to salvation, but radically changes them as well. And so let's be a people this week who plead with God to grow in us a hunger and thirst to know him for who he is. Let's be a people this week who run to the scriptures to see God for who he really is. And let's be a people this week who ask him for much, much grace to be cultivating in us a good conscience that not only will draw us closer to him, but that will be a picture before the lost world around us. And finally, friends, let's be a people this week who pray that God will give us open doors to speak of the hope that we have in Christ with those who need it. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful that in your sovereign plan, you've called us to be your ambassadors, as Jeff read earlier. Lord, that we're ministers of reconciliation. Just as we've experienced the joy of being reconciled to you, you now call us to be ministers of reconciliation as well. And Lord, we all fall so short in that. But we pray this week for much grace, much grace to realize what is at stake, to remember the eternal fate of those who do not know you, to not write that off or miss that, to think about the eternal hope we have in being with you forever, and to realize that you have put these people in our lives that we might point them to the hope of Christ. 
So Lord, I pray for myself and for these precious brothers and sisters that this week you would stir in us a holy reminder of what is at stake. You stir in us a holy desire to know you more and a desire to make you known to those around us. Lord, I pray that the lies of the enemy, which are so sneaky and so clever and so ever pushing against us, will be silenced this week. And we would understand the seriousness of our sin patterns. We'd understand the seriousness of those areas where we've suppressed our conscience instead of cultivating it. So we ask for much, much grace this week to do what we cannot do in our own. And that is to seek you to change our conscience, to change the way we think, to change our lives. We might better be a picture of what the gospel does to the lost world around us. Do it for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I ask you to stand, please? We're going to close out this morning with the song, Almost Home. This song is a song I hope will put hope into your heart to realize that this life is transitory, including the trials and struggles we walk through. But also remind us this life is very fleeting. We are not promised tomorrow. So friends, if you do not know Christ, cry out to the Lord today before it's too late. And for those who you're burdened for who do not know Christ, pursue them, pray for them before it's too late for them. Let's worship the Lord for the hope we have in heaven. Don't drop a single Round that happy 
eternity and that we live in light of eternity. Lord, we confess we are so short-sighted and so many days we lose sight of that. But I pray that you would give us grace to lift our eyes, to remember eternity, to think about you, and may it change not only how we live, but may it impact the lives of those around us this week. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon.